Our first scripture reading of the day is from Ecclesiastes. As we preach to the book of Mark, we like to read from the opposite testament. And so we'll be reading through Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll have Mark, I mean Luke, lead for us now. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting the ninth verse. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in men's hearts. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than that they be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. They might see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, are all are from dust, and dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beasts downward into the earth. So I saw there is nothing better that, than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. What can bring him to see what will be after him? As already was mentioned, we're in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a book that tells us of Jesus' life, ministry, and teachings. And we find ourselves in the last few days of Jesus' life. And we find ourselves particularly in chapter 12, which is found on the back of your bulletin. Before we walk through God's Word together, Let's read this passage together. Leo will read for us. Mark chapter 12, 28 to 44. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to them, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and have places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greatest condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all she had to live on. Thank you, Leah. Before we walk through God's word, uh, would you pray with me one more time? Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you for your word, that your word is truth. We pray that you'd sanctify us in the truth, because your word is truth. Give me the words to say, the clarity of mind to speak, that your people may be blessed, and our hearts may be encouraged, that we may love you more as a result of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you heard Leah right now, you probably were struck with the fact that all of the passages that were read, or all the different pieces that were read, felt a little disjointed. You might be like, these are somewhat related maybe, but I'm not really sure how. And that's exactly how I felt as I, just, as I tried to prepare this sermon. It feels like a riddle, and you're just like, what is the point? And as I gained clarity, it, it came to me that it should be phrased like this. So here's my version of the riddle. Where is a place that love is found, the ruler is crowned, and the people are not proud? It's the kingdom of God, for crying out loud. And though my riddle doesn't perfectly capture this, ca uh, this passage and sounds like something out of Dr. Seuss, it does give us clarity to what the unifying message of this passage is. It's the kingdom of God. The passage is telling us four things. It's telling us the identity of the kingdom, the identity of the king, and it gives us a warning and a commendation. And though you've received the structure of the passage, you're still probably wondering, why does any of this matter? Jesus, within these verses, highlights for us who's in the kingdom, who rules the kingdom, and how we can tell if we're truly reflecting the kingdom of God. So whether you're wondering, what is the kingdom of God? Or am I in the kingdom of God? 
Or how do I live as one within the kingdom of God? God's word has something for you today. Our first point is this. The identity of the kingdom is love and obedience. It's love and obedience. If you've been journeying with us through the book of Mark, you would know that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and people are are glad to hear him. He has many crowds coming towards him. But as he is teaching in the temple, he has many crowds of people that are angry with him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even political leaders like the Herodians have come and heard him, and they've tried to test him. They've tried to trap him in his words. And though they tried, they couldn't stump him. And our passage opens with telling us that after hearing all these three different groups, A scribe comes up and has a question of his own. He heard that Jesus answered well. And unlike the previous religious leaders, it seems that this scribe is well-meaning. He's genuinely intrigued with what Jesus has to teach. The scribes were a people that their occupations were both teaching the law as practitioners, but also inscribing the law and, and copiers. And so it's fitting that this scribe would come and ask a question related to God's law. They were experts in it. And so he comes, maybe, maybe not in a way of, of coming against Jesus, but there were some debates as to which of the thir- 613 commandments was most weighty or most important. And neither the scribe or Jesus are in any way saying that the other commandments of God are unimportant. But what they are saying is that there's one that is more important. It's like a physicist who's arguing maybe with his colleague is, is gravity more important or is inertia? Or a doctor asking what is the most significant organ? Maybe these are bad examples because neither of these are my field of study, but they are for us to see that there is normality to this question. It's like a person asking their colleague a technical question. And so this is what Jesus answers with. He answers with, in in verse 29, as we read, and Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with 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 all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Jesus answers, not just with one commandment, but with two. He quotes the first one from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which is very familiar to the first century Jews. They would have recited these, this prayer every day, morning and evening. Though they're not familiar words to us, these were familiar words to the Jewish leaders at that time. But Jesus makes an amendment. He, he not only gives the Shema, but he also adds to the Shema. He gives a new creed, and he says a second command. In verse 31, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And Jesus' answer, though very uncommon for his common culture, it did summarize the Ten Commandments perfectly. The first four of the Ten Commandments pertain to loving God. And then the second set, the, la- the latter six, pertain to loving others. And I think 
is when we come to a passage that pertains to laws, we're very often caught up with, I need to do something. But I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is after here. I think Jesus is not necessarily telling us what we need to do, but is actually telling the scribe implicitly what they have not done. And so maybe you've heard a sermon that's come out of this passage telling you to cast down your idols and that you need to love people better, but I don't think that that's what Jesus actually intends. I think the point of what Jesus is after is actually found after the affirmation of the scribe. It gives us clarity to what Jesus is saying. And so the scribe says this. The scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all understanding and with all strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe saw how Jesus summarized the law with these two commands and the fact that these commands are greater than one's atonement or the ones for atonement. He is simply saying that it's better for to obey than to atone. Or to say that if we did obey, there would be no need for atonement. If we obeyed these commands to love God and to love one another, there would be no need for atonement, forgiveness. And I believe that this line about sacrifices comes to mind because the scribe would have understood that these commands were not being obeyed. Though it might not be clear to us, it is clear to the scribe. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically in chapter 12, Moses tells the people that they should love the Lord their God and they should obey his commandments. And if they do, they will be blessed. And if they don't, they will be cursed. The blessings included things like fruitfulness, peace, and abundance. But the curses included exile and foreign occupation. And so if you are a first century Jewish person, you could look around and know that God was not pleased with you. They were occupied by Rome, they were highly taxed, and they were a people that were struggling. But they would pray. They would pray that this would change. They, they would ask God, would you send us a liberator that we would live under your rule and your reign? But this was God's intended mission, that throughout Scripture, God wanted the people of God to love and obey him and to bring about the kingdom on earth. When the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 19, Moses tells the people that they are to be a kingdom of priests. He tells them to be a kingdom of priests. So God has saved you. He's brought you out of Egypt. Now live like this. And so God intended that Israel would be a place where God is known and people are loved. And as a result, they would be a people of righteousness, truth, justice, and mercy. Though they knew these commands, they didn't live them out. And the reality is, if we were to look at these laws to love God and to love others, we don't keep them. It's impossible for us to do. But God promised that he would bring about a day where we are able to obey these commands from our hearts, to give us the abilities to truly love him and to love others. 
But this is only made possible if there is true and complete atonement. The, the blood of goats that were being killed for the sake of their sins were not enough. There had to be a greater sacrifice. There had to be a, a greater annulment. There had to be a greater end. And so Jesus Christ, the only one who could fully obey God perfectly, took on the penalty for sin, dying the death that we do deserve. The penalty for sin is death. And that's why they spilt the, the blood of goats and lambs. But Jesus takes this penalty for our sin, past, present, and future, by dying on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. Instead, he rose and is seated at the right hand of the Father, here and now, ruling and reigning as the king of the kingdom. The the kingdom is more than just a place of people loving God, but it's a place where God himself has made, made himself known. The kingdom is not a geographic place. It's not somewhere we can locate on earth. It's wherever the believers of Jesus Christ exist because he rules over heaven and earth. The the kingdom of God exists wherever the people of God do. And though we might not live these commands completely and perfectly, there is one who did, and his name is Jesus. And now he empowers us to do so that we would perfectly live them in the day to come. And so the scribe knew that God's intended design as an expert of law, he knew God's intended design was for God's kingdom to exist on earth. And though he understood this theoretically, he never experienced it experientially. He knew that the kingdom of God was a place where God was loved, people were loved, and obedience reigned. And so Jesus replies to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What the scribe has done here is that he's told us the law of the land. It's like when you think of going to Europe and you're like, ah, they drive on the the right side but you've just told me what a place is like given their law. Or it's like the identity of the United States of America being the place of the land of the free. And in this case, Jesus is saying, yes, the kingdom of God is a place that's known by a love for God and a love for neighbor. But in some ways, what Jesus is saying is that you may know about the land, but you are not within it. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not in it. And there are some in this place that have grown up in church. They know all the right truths. They know everything as it pertains to God's righteousness and rule. But they have not experienced the inward change of experiencing the kingdom of God. It is all theory, but none of it's experience. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be not in the kingdom of God? For the scribe, he would have understood this quite well. The walls of Jerusalem were what inhabited, what what, what encased the city. And outside of that city were the fires of where they burnt the trash, which would have been known as Gehenna. And that is the same word that Jesus uses for hell. And if you're not in the kingdom, if you're not within the city, where are you? You're in hell. 
And so what we see here is that you can know the right truths, but you can still be outside of God's kingdom. John Wesley, the father of the Methodist movement, was like this scribe in this passage. Wesley was raised by a God-fearing family. His, pa- his father was a pastor, and he went on to study and become a professor of Greek and logic. In 1782, he became an ordained minister in the Anglican Church. He was a man obsessed with piety. He would read his Bible. He'd fast. He would be doing all that he could. But he was an unconverted man. I know, it's crazy to think. In in 1735, he actually, even in his unconversion, accepts to be a missionary with the Moravians amongst indigenous people in America. And upon returning to England, he writes this in his journal. I went to America to convert the indigenous, but oh, who shall convert me? Oh, who shall convert me? On May 24th, 1738, John haphazardly flips through his Bible and he finds himself in Mark 12, 34. And he reads, You are not far from the kingdom of God. In a strange way that comforted him, knowing that he was not far, and by God's grace, later that day, he would hear the words preached from the book of Romans, and by God's grace, he came to faith through Christ and confessed him as his Lord and Savior. It is uncertain where the scribe ends up in eternity. But both John Wesley and this clergyman and, and the scribe have many things in common. They were both clergy. They both knew their Bible. They're both extremely religious, but they lacked one thing. They lacked Jesus. If you've yet to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, look to him today. Believe in Jesus Christ. But if you have trusted him and you are within the kingdom, What God's word gives us today is a reminder of identity. The reminder of identity of what the kingdom is like. It's marked by loving God and loving others. And so the reminder for you is love God. How do you love God? How do you you love somebody you don't know? You can't. And so my exhortation to you is spend time with your God in word and prayer, not like John Wesley that was just done in religiosity and in theory, but in true affection and experience. And be reminded of loving others as yourself, not less, not more, but as yourself. Be reminded that it's God who enables you to do such love and live in such a way by His Spirit to obey these commands to Him. Look to Him today. The scribe might have understood the kingdom of God was a place of love and obedience. He might have understood the land's history. He might have understood its laws. But he failed the citizenship test. And why did he fail? I believe he failed because he didn't know the king. He didn't know through whom this kingdom would come. Which leads us to our second point, which is this, the identity of the king the identity of the king. He's both Davidic and he's divine. He's both Davidic and he's divine. 
verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The great throng heard him gladly. After this interaction with this scribe, Jesus now criticizes the teaching of the scribes. He quotes the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. And in it, it gives clarity to what they would have misunderstood. What Jesus is asserting here is who is the Christ? The Christ was a person that Israel waited for. It is a term that was used in trans, trans, it's a translation of a term, the Messiah. Both are the same word. It means anointed one. And it was used for the expected king who would deliver Israel from their oppressors and save them. And this person to the scribes was simply the son of David, full stop, that's it. And this made sense. David was the promised king who had the covenant of God on his side. If you were to look at 2 Samuel 17, that's what it says. It will come from his line, the king who will deliver. But Jesus, looking at this passage, affirms and highlights, David wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But as David speaks, he speaks of one who is greater than David. One who is greater than David. As David calls him Lord. And it is this Lord that speaks to his Lord. It is, it is our Lord that speaks to him in this, in this passage. In Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is the only divine oracle that is found in the book of Psalms. It starts with the words, Noom Yahweh. And that is the divine oracle that tells us that thus saith the Lord, God declares. And so God, Yahweh is speaking to whom David says is his Lord, his superior. And what does he say? He says that his enemies will be under his feet. He makes such a promise to the coming Messiah that he will be victorious in the defeat of Israel's enemies. And so Jesus does in no way disregard that the, the coming Messiah would not be a, dis, a descendant of David. Instead, he affirms that he would be a descendant of David, but he tells him that, they, that this descendant would be greater. Greater in what way? That he would be greater in his authority. He'd be greater in his victory. He'd be greater in his supremacy. He's greater in the fact that he is divine. Look again at the passage. It says, sit at my right hand. This Messiah was co-equal with the Father. He sat beside God. And this is fulfilled in the fact, as I already mentioned, in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ as he rules and reigns now. Yesterday, uh, we had our Community Perspectives Day. 
And as I looked onto the lawn, in many ways, I didn't get to participate the way I liked to, but I was reminded of my days in Power to Change. And I was reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote in Mere Christianity. Lewis says that Jesus could never have just been a good teacher. If anyone were to just say that Jesus was a good teacher, he'd either be a liar or a lunatic. There's only, Jesus had to be Lord because he told everybody he was. And that's exactly what the, the scribes did not see. If you were to look upwards where we were just a moment ago, you see that the scribe answered Jesus and said, teacher, he misunderstood who he was speaking to. And so Jesus can't just be a good teacher. If he was, that wouldn't make any sense. He either lied about who he truly was, or he was absolutely crazy in saying that he was God. There is no in-between. And this is exactly what the scribes misunderstood. But in many ways, and in truly, Jesus Christ is more than a good teacher. He is Lord. As mentioned, he is co-equal to the Father. And this is what the scriptures say to us today. The question is, do we believe this? Do you believe this? Do I believe this, that Jesus is truly divine and that he is the promised Messiah who sits enthroned as his enemies are put under his feet? If we've believed these truths, that the victory has already been won, I think it would change our dispositions when the news is on or our phones ping and we wonder and we get discouraged and we get saddened and we're like, Jesus, are you really winning? Are you really in control here? But what this tells us, the posture of our king is reclined and seated as his enemies are under his feet. And in no way does this mean that Jesus is disengaged with our worries or our problems. Instead, it is the reassurance that he has won and that he will bring all things under his feet. And so we've heard of the identity of the kingdom. We've heard of the identity of the king. And now Jesus gives us two examples, one a warning and one commendation. Point three is this, the warning of phony faith. The warning of phony faith. Jesus says here, beware. Beware of what? The scribes. Let us read now verse 38. Robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor as feats at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And so Jesus yet again speaks to the scribes. Not only are these scribes teaching incorrectly, but they're living incorrectly. They're living for prominence. They want to dress up and they, they, they cover all of it in piety. They wore clothes that distinguished themselves amongst others in common areas. They had the best seats of status at the feasts. And as mentioned, they were lawyers. And they used their authority and their law for negative effects upon the widows. 
And so Jesus calls them as devouring the widows. They completely destroyed them by making bad deals. These men were worried about their outward appearance. They cared about the praise of man. And they took advantage of those of whom they were supposed to protect. And they covered it all up with prayer. Note that false teaching always leads to false practice. That's what we see with these scribes. These false teachers were leading false lives. And though there is no one-to-one comparison of a scribe in modern Christianity, more simply, we can look at it as religious leaders. They're religious leaders who likely didn't get paid much for their work. One commentator puts, puts it that way, and that's why they look for status and respect. And likely, this is the reason why they devoured the widows. But when we put it in these terms, it's quite scary because we, we, we think of pastors, we think of evangelists, we think of many who could fit this description. When I told my neighbor what I was preaching on, and I came to this point in my outline, they had a list of Christians and people that they could describe that fit this. And that was so saddening. Maybe there are particular denominations, maybe there's particular people that you can think of that had this phony faith. And I pray that it would not be us. Pray that would not be us. The the warning that Jesus gives against phony faith is the epitome of fake it till you make it. But what he tells us is that it doesn't work. You might fool others, but it won't cut it. It doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. And what he actually says is that their condemnation, what they will receive, is far greater and worse than the others. Simple unbelief, yes, it gets you hell and you are outside the walls of the city. But false teaching and injustice gets you a worse punishment. This is a moment in scripture where we see that not all sin is weighted equal. There are greater and lesser punishments that God will deal. I don't know exactly what that actually means, but that's what God's word tells us today. False teaching and injustice will not stand. God will judge, and he will judge severely. Our God sees, and he knows, and he will not stand for such behavior. So what do you take away from this? What do I take away from this? Avoid such teachers of the Bible. Avoid such teachers of the Bible. Those who are living to exploit God and to exploit others are simply lovers of self. Jesus, in many ways, is telling us who we think are in are actually out, and those who are out are actually in. Which brings us to our last point, and that's what we'll see in these last four verses. Our fourth point is this, the commendation of faith. The commendation of faith. Let's read now verse 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put large sums and the poor widow 
came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his, his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those are contributing to the offering box. For, all, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had to live on. Many of us, when we come to passages about offering, giving, tithing, our chests tighten up. We get a little stressed. Within our society, there are many concerns about giving to religious institutions, simply because many believe that they're corrupt. But as good Presbyterians, we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, and neither does Jesus. Jesus, after criticizing the, the religious leaders of that day for being corrupt, he doesn't turn around and tell them, or tell us, or tell the widow not to give to the temple. And even next week, he will hear that Jesus speaks of the destruction of the temple. But even with that in mind, Jesus doesn't tell the woman to stop giving. Instead, he commends her faith in giving. He actually calls the disciples together and he's like, come and look at this. Come hear about this. I want to tell you what just took place. Jesus has moved from teaching in the temple to now people watching within the temple. And he's observing the offering box. He seems to have seen many people put in large sums of money. But the one that sticks out to him was the one who put the least. It was a widow who wandered in and put the smallest amount. Verse 42 tells us that she put two copper coins, which is a penny. These were two lepta, which made up one sixty-fourth of a denarii, which is a day's wages, which in, in our day's context, this is the equivalent of a dollar and 87 cents. She put in a dollar and 87 cents. In those days, which is already mentioned, widows were poor. They were the destitute. They were the most vulnerable. And here what we see is that she gives even though she's the one that's in need of charity. She may have been exploited, but she still gave. And some of you are wondering, are you telling me that I have to give to the church and have nothing to my name? Is that what this is teaching us, that we should give till we're poor like the widow? The simple answer to that is no. That is not what God's word is telling us today. But what we do see is that this woman lived out what is found in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. God loves a cheerful giver. We are told that the wealthy gave out of their abundance and that she gave out of her poverty. This leaves, this leaves us with the consideration. Are you giving to God out of the overflow of your cup and he's just getting the drippings? Or are you giving out of what you live on? This, I believe, is what Jesus is saying here. The widow gave out of what she lived on and the others just gave from what was left over. The level and priority of our love for God is seen in our giving. 
And God sees it, and he loves it, and he knows it, and he blesses it. What we've seen in this passage is the identity of the kingdom, the identity of the king, and those of whom who are actually in it and those who are out. We've seen this faith of this widow. And as we close, I want us to meditate on this. A one who gave more than what he had to live on. He gave his very life. He gave it for those who were not only corrupt, but he gave it for those who denied him, defied him, the one who commends donations that would likely be given to betray him, this person is no other than Jesus Christ, the one who died the death for our lack of love, for God and for neighbor. He did this so that we would love him, that we would know him, and that we would be within his kingdom. Be reminded of his love today. Let's pray. Hey, Father, though in many ways uh, we've heard a riddle of the kingdom of God, I pray that you'd make these truths clearer and truer to us as we are a people that delight to love you and to know you and live within your kingdom. I pray that you'd call many to profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.